As I mentioned last week, we're uh, turning to John's Gospel this morning to begin a series working our way through John's Gospel. So we're going to take some time to introduce it and get a sense of what we're dealing with in this book of the Bible. And then we'll just look this morning at the first five verses of John's Gospel. And the first thing to realize is that the book we're going to look at in the weeks ahead would be more accurately called the Gospel According to John. There are four New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it is not the case that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had different Gospels. Gospel means good news. And all four Gospels share the same good news about Jesus. But it is true that each of the Gospel writers have their own particular emphasis. They focus in on slightly different aspects of the good news. And so when we read all four Gospels, we have a much fuller sense of the good news than we would have if there was just one Gospel authored by one person. That's why, as I said, it helps to think of the good news according to Matthew and according to Mark or Luke or John. Their accounts complement each other. When a diamond is slowly turned in the light more of its brilliance is able to be seen. And I think that's a helpful way to think of the four New Testament Gospels. Each one shows us more of the brilliance of the good news about Jesus. So then the next question is, what is John's angle? What does he want to highlight for us? Well, if you sat down and read through all four Gospels, one after the other, you would be struck by how much John's style differs from the other three. The first three report lots and lots of events from from Jesus' life, reports of Jesus' sayings and his miracles come at us thick and fast as we read the first three Gospels. They're almost piled on top of each other. It's like the writers are trying to cram in as much as possible for us. But when we come to John's Gospel we immediately notice a very different style. The pace slows right down. John deals with things in a more reflective, almost a meditative style. It seems John was the last of the four to write his gospel. The John we're dealing with is John, the son of Zebedee. That's where the evidence points. So he was one of the 12 disciples. And along with Peter and James... John was one of the three disciples who were closest to Jesus. So John was an eyewitness of the things he writes about, and it's likely he was at least aware of the Gospels written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John waited until near the end of his life before he wrote his Gospel. So as well as giving us his eyewitness evidence, John is also giving us the product of years of reflection on the things he heard and saw from Jesus. John has been proclaiming the good news for several decades. He has had plenty of time to meditate on how the life and death of Jesus relate to the Old Testament. He's had time to notice levels of significance he simply was not able to see at the time, when the things Jesus did and said were flashing by in real time. 
Jesus himself promised that after he returned to heaven, the Holy Spirit of God would guide the disciples into all the truth about him. And as John writes, he's giving us the fruit of long contemplation on what he saw and heard. All of it guided by the Holy Spirit of God. And what we find is John is very selective. He deals with a lot less material than the other three Gospels. No doubt he assumes we already know the other three. And instead of giving us all the same material, he selects just a relatively small amount of material. Some of it is in the other Gospels, some of it isn't. John chooses what he sees as key moments and key events. And he goes into great detail on those, opening up the meaning and significance for us. So that's John's style. That's his approach. But what is his purpose? What does he want to achieve in writing this gospel? Well, very helpfully, he tells us. Near the end of his gospel, he says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice a couple of things here. To begin with, John acknowledges he has been very selective. There's plenty more he could have mentioned. But John has narrowed it down so that everything he says serves his purpose. And his purpose is that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. And so at this point, if you are a Christian, you may be thinking, well, great. I already believe that, so I don't need to bother with John's gospel. Well, it is true, of course, that John wants to see unbelievers come to believe. But one of the big questions he's going to deal with is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Because as we read his gospel, we're going to find plenty of people who believed in Jesus, but they didn't stick with Jesus. Their belief turned out to be shallow. It didn't last. And so John's aim is to lead all of us to a deeper, stronger belief in Jesus. A belief in Jesus that is so firmly grounded it is not going to melt away when life is difficult. It's not going to fade away when Jesus says something that challenges us. So whether you are not yet a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for years, John has written this book that you may believe. And what we're to believe is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the result of that belief is life in his name. Again, John is going to lead us further in our understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He's going to lead us further in our understanding of what it means to have life in his name. And I would suggest to you that as Christians living in an age of unbelief, 
an age when, if people are aware of Jesus at all, they see him as just another religious leader. I would suggest to you that in our time and place, the focus on John's gospel is as important as it has ever been for us to focus on what John is telling us. It's important because we are all more affected by our culture than we even realize. All of us are. And so we need John's gospel more than we even realize. And so as we come each week to a new passage in this book, our first question is always going to be, what does this passage tell me about Jesus? Yes, there's lots in here about living for Jesus and following him day to day. There is. But the first question will always be, who is Jesus and what is John showing us about him? That's what we can expect from John's gospel. And now in the time we have left, let's just look at the first five verses of his gospel. If you're using a church Bible, it's 1063. And in the larger print Bibles, 1646. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's Word. But it is not the kind of thing we're used to reading in the Bible. Thinking back to what we said earlier, it's not the kind of thing we would read in the first three Gospels. It sounds a bit philosophical, a bit mystical even. But what John is doing here is setting the story of Jesus into its proper context, its eternal cosmic context. John is showing us, if you and I want to understand Jesus the man, the carpenter, the preacher, the worker of miracles, if we truly want to understand him, we have to go back, way, way back, before his preaching and miracles, before his birth, before the nation of Israel ever existed, even before the creation of the world. We have to go back to the beginning. Now, if you have read the Bible, you'll see that here in verse 1, John is taking us back to the first verse of the whole Bible. The Bible opens in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, with the words, in the beginning. And what Genesis 1 then describes for us is the creation of the world. That's what John is taking us back to. But he's taking us back there to show us Jesus was already there before creation. 
course, the name Jesus isn't mentioned in verse 1. It's not mentioned in the first five verses. But a few verses later, John explains that he is talking about Jesus. So why not just call him Jesus? Why refer to him here as the Word? It's a strange thing to call someone. Well, I think the key to understanding this comes in the passage we read earlier this morning from Isaiah chapter 55. In that chapter, God says this, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that comes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God says the water that falls on the earth makes things happen. It produces a harvest. And God says my word makes things happen too. My word accomplishes everything I desire, in fact. Now, as we read these verses in Isaiah, we think of the word that God speaks, the words we find in the Bible. They make things happen. The words of Scripture are alive and active. They teach us, rebuke us, they correct us, they encourage us, and they train us in righteousness. The words of Scripture do a whole load of things. But here, in John 1, verse 1, we discover that God's Word is not just words on a page. Not just words spoken in a sermon, even. Above all, God's Word is a person. Jesus. It is Jesus who goes out from God and does not return empty. It is Jesus who accomplishes what God desires. It is Jesus who achieves the purpose for which God sent him. The Jesus we're going to get to know in John's gospel is not just a man doing and saying significant things. He is the Word of God. Doing and saying all that God wants him to say. Accomplishing all that God desires to accomplish. Achieving all the purposes for which God sent him. Everything Jesus does and says is fulfilling a mission that comes right from the top. None of it's random, none of it is spur of the moment. All of it is exactly in line with God's desire and purpose. That is the point of referring to Jesus as the Word. But that's not all John is telling us in verse 1. He's also telling us, not only does Jesus accomplish God's purposes in the world, Jesus is God. Verse 1 says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Again, that is a strange thing to say. In human terms, it makes no sense. It would be nonsensical, for example, for me to say, I was with Megan and I was Megan. I can be with Megan, but I can't be Megan. And in Megan's case, she can be Megan, but she can't be with Megan. Megan is my wife, by the way. Now, I know we live in a time of massive identity confusion. We do. But even so, even today in the world we live in, in human terms, John chapter 1, verse 1 makes no sense. In human terms, we have to pick one or the other, don't we? He's with him or he is him. He can't be both. But this is not about humanity. This is about God. And when it comes to God, it can be said that Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. And the rest of John's gospel, we're going to read about God the Father and God the Son. And what John is telling us is the Son is not the same person as the Father. But the Son is God, just as the Father is God. Two persons who share equally in the same Godness. The Father is not more God than the Son. The Son is not less God than the Father. Both, verse 1 says, were there together before creation. Before the beginning, we read about in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Does that make your head hurt? Maybe it does. But John wants us at the beginning to get this under our belt. <clears throat> and so he underlines it in verse 2. He, God the Son, was with God the Father in the beginning. Jesus is Lord from eternity. He did not begin to exist when he was born in Bethlehem or when he entered his mother's womb nine months before Bethlehem. He didn't begin when creation began either. He's not a part of creation. He was there with his father before creation, sharing equally in the godness of his father, the deity of his father. And so right from the start, John has raised the stakes as high as they can possibly go. When you and I deal with Jesus Christ, we are not dealing with a Jewish rabbi who is only relevant to the Jews. We're not dealing with a wise teacher who might be worth consulting. We're not dealing with a political revolutionary or a stop the war campaigner depending on how you read him. Nor are we even dealing with, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would have us believe, a God, small g. That is simply not what John is telling us. When we deal with Jesus, we deal with God the Son. Equally God alongside his Father. So there are not several ways to know God. 
There's only one way, through Jesus. The Word of God, the one, the only one, who goes out from the Father and accomplishes what the Father desires. And John wants us to see, Jesus is not only Lord from eternity, he is also Lord of all creation. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Next time when we come back to this the Sunday after next, after the visit from SGA, next time we'll hear about Jesus' arrival in this world. But here we're told, long before he arrived in it, he made it. Before he accomplished his Father's desire on earth, Jesus accomplished his Father's desire by creating the earth. The whole universe, in fact. Stephen Hawking may be the most famous scientist of the last few decades, and in his book, A Brief History of Time, he said, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. The eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. The Bible tells us we have something much, much better than a theory. We have a person, Jesus Christ. He stands behind it all. And so if we have grasped verse 3, it's no great shock then when we go on to read in John's Gospel of Jesus turning water into wine, or healing the paralyzed man, or raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is not a conjurer. And he's so much more even than a miracle worker. He is Lord of all creation. So, of course, the elements do what he commands. Of course, human bodies do what he commands. Even dead human bodies. Verse 4 says, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Not only did Jesus create all things, he sustains all things. Every day, every second since the initial creation, Jesus has been giving the gifts of life and light to the universe. Every atheist is being given life every moment of every day by Jesus Christ. So when someone hears about Jesus and they say, well, that's okay for you, but it's not for me. What a tragic lack of understanding they're showing. If it wasn't for Jesus sustaining them, they would already be dead. So to say Jesus isn't for me is as wrong-headed as saying breathing isn't for me, thanks. And we might wonder, what does verse 4 mean when it speaks about the light of all mankind? Well, surely it means not only physical light, but also understanding, enlightenment, insight into the way things really are. 
that too comes from Jesus. And it comes from Jesus alone. Only Jesus can enable us to make sense of the universe. And to make sense of our own lives. With all of their shocks and surprises and instabilities. He gives light not only to the universe, but also to our own minds and hearts. Then verse 5 adds something else to the picture. Darkness. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. If we only had the first part of verse 5... We might assume this is just about the initial creation of light in Genesis 1. And yes, that was the work of Jesus. But the second half of verse 5 adds the idea of hostility, opposition, evil. To say the darkness has not overcome the light implies that it aimed to overcome the light. It desired to master the light. And John's gospel will show us the efforts of darkness to overcome Jesus, the light of the world. We'll see the efforts of Jesus' human enemies. And we'll see the spiritual forces of evil too, trying to master the light. Once you and I begin to think about the big questions of life, one of those questions is always, how and why does evil exist in God's universe? Right? That's a question that puzzles us. It troubles us. And it's a question the Bible doesn't answer. Not directly, anyway. We would need to be God to understand the answer. But what the Bible does is, it assures us the existence of evil does not diminish Jesus' lordship over all creation. The presence of evil is a mystery to us, not to God, but to us. But what you and I can be sure of is, evil is no threat to God. We do not live in the world of Star Wars, where darkness and light are two equal and rival powers, and who knows which one is going to win in the end. In the real world, even darkness is under the lordship of Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It never has and it never will. John's Gospel will go on to show us the day darkness seemed to have won. The day Jesus died on the cross. But even that day was ultimately the greatest defeat of darkness. Even the most focused efforts of darkness cannot overcome the Lord of all creation. And what that means is, even the darkness in your own situation, it's under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
You might not understand why that darkness has come. But what you can hold on to is this. If you belong to Jesus, then that darkness cannot overcome you because it cannot overcome him. Jesus has faced the greatest darkness in the universe and he has triumphed over it. There is no dark corner of your life that can outmaneuver Jesus. Now that truth might not help you make sense of what's happening to you, but it can give you peace even in great darkness. And as you and I watch the news and we see those disturbing images of war, as we feel the darkness of war and we hear rumors of more and greater war, here is our firm foundation as Christians. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. So if you want a verse of the Bible to settle you with its comprehensive assurance, put this on your fridge or your screen. Because this is not saying the darkness hasn't overcome the light yet and let's hope it stays that way. No, in the context of John's gospel, the point is the most concerted and terrible efforts of darkness came together in the event of Jesus' crucifixion. And still, they could not overcome the light. And so, we can be sure the darkness can never overcome the light. However dark the darkness gets, it is the light that will overcome. That's the truth our Christian brothers and sisters in Ukraine are holding on to. That's the truth they are gaining strength from. And we can too. Next time we'll hear about Jesus' arrival in this world he made when he took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. But John has started by setting Jesus in his full and proper context. He is Lord from eternity. And he is Lord of all creation. And as we come in just a moment to share the Lord's Supper together, we come to it this morning with this big perspective. The one who came to earth and gave himself for our salvation, the one whose body and blood are represented by this bread and wine, he is the one who was with God in the beginning. He is God. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, we can say he is our God. So before we gather around the table, let's praise him as we sing meekness and majesty. <laughs>